This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 14th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Elizabeth Panisi about the important ecosystem services provided by the hippopotamus. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm. He's the editor of our daily news site, here to talk about some recent online stories. Hi, Dave. Hey, Magna. I'm Magna Sachdev, and today we're going to start with kind of a weird story. I'm assuming you've had that weird feeling like someone's standing right behind you. (laughs) Well, so apparently researchers have been able to recreate this feeling in the lab. Why would they want to do that? Well, this traces back to this unusual observation about 10 years ago where a neuroscientist was manipulating the brain of a patient. And when he hit a region of the brain known as the frontoparietal cortex, this is a region that's involved in integrating our senses. So if somebody hits you in the face, you don't just feel that punch, but you feel the pain at the same time. And there's a region of your brain which is thought to sort of integrate those sensations. Anyways, when he was manipulating this, all of a sudden this person felt like there was somebody else in the room, even though there wasn't. And so that got scientists thinking, well, is there a sort of a miswiring in the brain that causes some people, some epilepsy patients, people with schizophrenia, to have hallucinations about people being in the room when they're actually not there. The researchers actually ended up creating a robot that could induce this feeling. How did they manage to do that? Well, it's a really interesting setup. You can see a video of it on the site. But basically, the robot sort of comes in two parts. And a person stands up, and there's a part where they can poke their finger into certain parts of the robot. And as they're doing this, there's another part of the robot that's behind them that's actually poking them at the same time. So they're poking, and the robot's poking them. Um, But the researchers mixed it up a little bit, too. And all the participants were wearing blindfolds and earphones during the study so that would sort of block out all those sensations. So sometimes they would poke the robot and the robot would poke them immediately. But sometimes they would poke the robot and there would be this two to three second delay between when the robot poked them back. And the really interesting thing is what the researchers found when they did this is when there was this delay, all of a sudden a lot of the participants started feeling really uncomfortable, like there was somebody else touching them. In fact, a couple felt so uncomfortable that they asked researchers to stop the experiment. Whoa. (laughs) In this case, the robot was actually physically touching them. That's right. 
But what about that creepy feeling, like somebody is just standing right behind you? Right. So there was another part of the experiment where the researchers repeated the robot test, but this time they brought a few other scientists into the room and they told the participants, "Look, there's going to be other scientists in the room, but they're not going to get anywhere close to you." And this time, when there when there was this delay between the participants touching the robot and the robot touching them. The participants swore that the scientists were getting really close to them and were standing right next to them, even though they weren't. It makes sense that people who have some kind of problems with their brains would be susceptible to this kind of sensation. But how does it happen with healthy people? Well, what the researchers think is happening is somehow this delay between people touching the robot and the robot touching them is messing up something with their frontal parietal cortex. That it's causing this mismatch of how the brain integrates senses, and when that happens, the brain starts to sense things that maybe aren't there. Next up, we have a story on what I know is your favorite animal, <laughs>、uh, which is cats. So, how did humans and cats start living together? Well, scientists believe that cats first entered human society around ten thousand years ago. This is an important time point because this is a time when we had started to take up farming, when we were growing crops, when we were storing grain, and it's thought that this grain attracted rodents. Rodents attracted wild cats who slunk out of the desert into these early farming villages, and cats. Sort of the idea goes that they. Knew a good thing when they saw it. That they realized that if they were friendlier, if they were tamer, that the humans wouldn't kill them. That they may get some table scraps. And this is thought to have been the beginnings of how humans and cats first started living together. The result of this interaction between humans and cats actually shows up in the cat genome. I know the researchers looked at a bunch of different genomes. What exactly did they find? Well, they started with the genome of a cat, obviously, and actually they started with the genome of a female cat named Cinnamon, who's an Abyssinian. <laughs> She was sequenced in 2007. This was the very first cat genome. The researchers took that genome, they cleaned it up a little bit, they added some extra sequence. They ended up with what they say is the highest quality cat genome that we have.、Yeah. They actually compared that genome to the genomes of tigers, of dogs, of cows, of humans, and they compared the genomes of a bunch of other domestic cats to those of the Near Eastern wildcat and the European wildcat. The Near Eastern wildcat is thought to be the ancestor of today's cats. Anyways, a lot of comparisons going on, but what they found was that there was a bunch of genes that they found in the domestic cat genome that seemed to have been modified over the last ten thousand years, i.e. Over the course of domestication, some of these are genes that you would expect. Genes involved in things like vision and hearing. It's known that cats have very good night vision. They have ultrasonic hearing. Cats are also obligate carnivores, which means they have to eat meat. And the researchers saw evidence in their genome that there was genes that seemed to have been selected for that help cats. Process fat, which you would expect for an animal that's eating a lot of meat. In fact, a lot of these genetic changes are actually seen in polar bears as well, which also have a very highly carnivorous diet. But the really interesting genetic changes the researchers picked up on were when they compared the domestic cat genome to that of wild cats. Here, they saw genes that really seemed to play an important role in domestication. Genes involved in things like the fear response and the ability to get excited about a food reward or to learn based on a food reward, and even genes involved in other types of behavior and cognition. Genes involved in domestication in general that may affect things like coat color and brain size, and these are genes that are involved in domestication, or at least scientists think they're involved in domestication of other animals, including cows and dogs. And so, research are really picking out are not just the genes that affect how cats became domesticated, but also maybe affect how a lot of other animals became domesticated as well. We're seeing a lot of genomic changes, but some people say cats are still just semi-domesticated. <laughs> Is that really true? Well, it's hard to say based on the information we have right now. What one of the researchers says is that when you compare the domestic cat genome 
to the domestic dog genome, you do see evidence of less natural selection on the cat genome, which makes sense. It's thought that dogs have lived with us for up to 30,000 years, so they've been with us a lot longer. That's a lot more chance for genetic change. But as to this question of whether cats are semi-domesticated, uh, one of my favorite quotes from the article is one of the outside experts says, uh, I've got two cats at home, and they're as domesticated as any animal on earth. You've got homes where a cat's just sitting there on the couch, and you've got a dog walking by, and you've got this hairless primate walking by. These are both animals that should be a major threat to cats, and cats just sit there ignoring them, and that's a lot to ask of a wild animal. Next up, we have a story about humans that can see using sound. I guess we all have a little Batman inside us. It turns out that some humans can use clicks and echoes to navigate the world, basically a human form of the echolocation that bats and dolphins use. So Dave, what exactly is going on here? Humans are making the same noises that bats and dolphins are making, right? Well, when we know what bats do is they emit these high-frequency clicks, so high-frequency that we can't hear them. But this is how they navigate. They make these clicks. The clicks bounce off objects. The bats have these ears that swivel around a lot, and so their ears are sort of like radar dishes. They pick up on the echo of these clicks, and that helps them navigate around at night. Now, obviously, we can't do that. Our ears don't swivel, and we can't produce these ultrasonic clicks, but we can make clicks, and it actually has been shown in some blind people that they can use these clicks to get around. There's actually a famous example of a blind person named Daniel Kish who can actually navigate around traffic in his bike just by clicking at the cars. And is this something anyone can learn to do with practice? Well, that's what the researchers showed in the study. They actually recruited a bunch of volunteers. All of them could see, and they trained them. They put them in this hallway, and they put a blindfold on them, and they just said, you know, learn how to make clicks, to have those clicks bounce off walls and see if you can figure out how to navigate this hallway just by listening for the echoes of those clicks. And after a few weeks of practice, most of the volunteers were able to navigate using this human form of echolocation. The researchers actually ended up coming up with a video game for human echolocation. So what kind of techniques were they trying to teach people with this game? Well, what they're really trying to figure out is, you know, one of the big deficiencies we have compared to bats is we don't have these swiveling ears. And the question was, how much of a difference does that make with echolocation? Are we able to echolocate without moving our head around? Or do we have to do a lot of like this to compensate for the fact that we don't have swivelly ears? That's where the video game comes in. The researchers recreated this hallway, but this time it was a virtual hallway. And they had the participants use echolocation again. They were echolocating in a microphone this time. But using echolocation to navigate this virtual hallway, and the researchers measured how much they were moving their heads around. And it turns out when the participants didn't move their heads around a lot, they were really crap at navigating (laughs) this hallway. I mean, they just kept on bumping into walls. But that when they were able to move their heads around a lot, they were much better at echolocating, which indicates that this is how we compensate for the fact that we're not bats, is that we have to move our heads around a lot to acquire this additional navigational skill. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Magna, we've got a story about the gene that turns mosquitoes into vampires. Also a story about finding a tape recorder inside cells, something that's a bit like a tape recorder. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got all the latest news on the Rosetta Comet landing. Also a story about why Congress targets certain scientific grants for review. And finally, we encourage you to go to breakthroughs.sciencemag.org to vote on what you think is the most important scientific discovery of the year. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Magna. David Grimm is the editor for Online Daily News site. I'm Meghna Suchdev. You can check out the latest news from science and our policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. 
Until about 30,000 years ago, the hippopotamus ranged from the tip of Africa all the way to the United Kingdom. These days, the lumbering beasts are confined to rivers and streams of sub-Saharan Africa. Despite the decline, scientists have been hesitant to study hippo habits in the wild. I spoke with Science News senior correspondent Elizabeth Panisi about her visit to a research facility in Kenya where they are studying the hippopotamus after decades of neglect. The Hippo Research Project is based out of the Impala Research Center, which is about a four-and-a-half-hour drive northwest of Nairobi. It used to be part of a ranch. They turned part of it into a research center, and they have a couple of laboratory buildings, a library, a dining hall, some dorm space, a campground for students, and the whole thing is surrounded by a giant electric fence so they keep the elephants and the lions out. <laughs> so is it called Impala, like named after the animal, the Impala? No, it's M-P-A-L-A. So it's not Impala, it's Impala. <laughs> so it's not named after anything. And is there a focus on hippos or anything out there that's... No, it's anything out there. So there are people studying baboons. There are people studying long-term changes on the savanna, people studying ants. Anything you can name, they're studying. But there are hippos in zoos, and they're on the more charismatic side when it comes to the megafauna. But they really haven't been studied that much, right? Why have researchers been staying away from hippos? Well, hippos are very dangerous. They have a reputation of being the most dangerous animal in Africa and supposedly killing more people than lions or elephants. I don't know whether there's any good statistics on that, but that's what their reputation is. And they also have some odd habits and bodies that make it tough to keep track of them? Yes, they do. For one thing, they spend most of their day submerged in the water. They live in ponds and in the backwaters of lakes and in river eddies. And typically, you can't see very deep into the water. So all you get to look at is their nostrils and their eyes. And you can't really tell them apart that way, so it's hard to identify them. And you can't put a collar on one, right? You know, a lot of ways people track movements of animals is by putting radio or GPS collars on them. But hippos don't really have a neck. So it would be hard to get a collar that would stay on them. And did you actually go out into, you know, these areas and try to find a hippo with the researchers? Well, we had no trouble finding them. He knew exactly where they were. They were in the ponds during the day or in the river during the day, and we, he knew exactly where they lived. And usually you think when they're in the river and it's daytime, you don't worry too much about them coming out after you, but you always are really close to your car or, in his case, a land cruiser, so that if you have to run for it, you can get to your car in time. As we were saying, they're not easy to tag. They're not easy to see underwater. They're not easy to identify as individuals. What are some of the methods that are now being adapted to overcome these difficulties in studying hippos? Well, the researcher that I spent time with, he's actually sort of climbed up in a tree and spent an entire day in a tree just trying to observe them in the water and watch what they do. They set out camera traps, which are these cameras that are activated by movement, and they have like 50,000 hours of camera wow. data. So the latest thing that they've been trying to do and they've had a little bit of success with is instead of tranquilizing an animal and putting a radio or GPS collar on it, 
You can't tranquilize a hippo because then it heads into the water and it will drown. So what they do is they do what biologists have been doing with marine mammals for quite a long time. They shoot the animal with a dart that has a GPS tag on it, and the dart sort of lodges in the skin of the hippo, which is very thick, and then starts generating signals from there. Let's talk about some of the more dung-centric research that's in process. Why study hippo feces? Well, for one, hippos make a lot of it. One researcher, Amanda Sobolewski, thinks that each one produces about 8 kilograms of feces a day. But the other thing is, is so hippos spend their days in the water, and at night they go out and they feed on land. They feed on the grass, and then they come back and they poop in the water all day. So there's this nutrient transfer going on that could be significant in terms of maintaining the aquatic ecosystem. The rivers in Africa tend to be very muddy, and so you don't get a lot of algal growth, so you don't get a lot of nutrient boost that way. One study you talk about in the story is an attempt to trace the nutrient contributions that hippos make to the environment. How did they take a close look at that? So what they did is make use of what's called the isotopic signatures. Every element has different isotopes, which means a slightly heavier or lighter version of the atoms. And plants, when they do photosynthesis, they build up particular ratios of these isotopes in their tissues. And then when the animals eat that, when the hippo eats that, they sort of take in that plant material and that isotopic ratio is transferred to them and then pooped out. And then if microorganisms eat the poop or fish eat the poop, then they too will have those isotopic signatures in them. And the signature identifies the plant. So one kind of plant has this kind of ratio and another kind of plant. Exactly, exactly. And when they look at the plants that hippos were eating based on this isotopic ratio, what did they find out? So they found out, one, that hippos are pretty particular in what they eat. They choose between one and three grasses, even though there's a lot of variety out there on the savanna to eat. They found out that guppies who eat hippo poop also take on those isotopic signatures, so they show that the energy is moving from, from hippo to fish. And they found that same isotopic ratio in a lot of invertebrates that also live in the hippo pools. And then in another study, there was some concern that they were addressing that the hippo dung can actually overwhelm an ecosystem with nutrients. How did they look into that? So that was Amanda Sabolewski's group. They wanted to quantify how much hippo poop is actually getting put into a river system, a river called the Mara. And so what they did is they went to a zoo, which had hippos. And at this zoo, they clean out the hippo pool every day. So they they measured how much water was in a clean hippo pool. And then 24 hours later, they measured how much poop was in the hippo pool and how much added water there was to get a sense of the urine. And then they factored that in to calculations where they know there are 4,000 hippos in the Mara River, and that's how they get their 36 tons. (laughs) 36 tons? Yes, yes. So they've been measuring dissolved oxygen levels in the Mara River, and what they find is when there's a heavy rain and the flow increases a lot, suddenly the dissolved oxygen levels go way down, and that can cause fish kills. 
And so what they're doing now is they have a, a little boat that they've disguised as a crocodile that will measure how much what the water level is and what the poop level is on the bottom and see if it changes a lot during a storm. And why might that level change and decrease the amount of dissolved oxygen? So the thinking is that there's all this poop that settles out and is just sitting there with a lot of microbial activity and that what happens in the so what happens when the river floods, the floodwaters stir up that poop and put it into the water column, and then all the oxygen is used up. Right. Well, how are hippos doing in the wild? Are they threatened, and will this research help with conservation? Well, hippos are surprisingly not doing all that well. They used to live all the way up to the United Kingdom and the Mediterranean, and, of course, they're gone from there. They were in Egypt 100 years ago, and they're gone from there now. So they live just in sub-Sahara Africa. There's an estimated 135,000 left, but they seem to be declining. And people don't really know exactly why, though. It's expected it's because they're losing habitat to development and because they come into conflict with farmers and people who need to use the water. This research, aside from sort of demonstrating the important role that hippos play in ecosystems, might be helpful to conservation because as part of the research, they are learning more about what the the migration habits are of the hippos and can sort of see where they go, why they go, where they go, and what they need. Liz, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. Liz Panisi writes about the value of hippo feces in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.